Uh, today we'll read from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll actually read through verse 4 of chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me there so that we can look at this passage together. Uh, I do want to wish you a very happy Mother's Day. I know that I would not, uh, this is trite, but I wouldn't be the man I was today without my own mother. Um, it, it wouldn't be the man I am today without my, my wife um, showing me what motherly, looks, motherly love looks like uh, in the godly sense to our four children. Um, and so this is a wonderful day to uh, even reflect on that. If you're visiting with us today, uh, I do extend a warm welcome to you, and I extend a further invitation to uh, just come up and introduce yourself after service. If you have a few moments uh, to spare, I would love to meet you. Um, let's turn now to God's word and uh, then pray that he would move during our time uh, this morning. Second Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God, Find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of, all, uh, of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that you are faithful because you have fulfilled all of your promises through your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we take time to search out the scripture today, that we, by your spirit's enablement, would root our lives and our character, and our integrity, and our decisions, and our choices, and your very faithfulness, that you would be our firm foundation. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. 
When I was a child, almost every Friday evening, my parents would take me to a video rental store, Blockbuster. Um, and after I had picked out a video game for the weekend, we would visit a drugstore right next to Blockbuster. It was called Medic. And we would go to Medic because it had the most glorious candy aisle that a kid could possibly ask for. It was glorious because its candy aisles stretched on on both sides from wall to wall in the store, and it had every single candy imaginable. But while it was altogether glorious, it was also a rather painful experience as a child because my parents would always tell me to pick out one thing of candy. And I would spend what felt like an eternity trying to decide what kind of candy I was going to pick for the evening. I would always commit to one thing and then within a few seconds put it back and pick up another one. And then I would begin taking that to the register and as I would meet my dad at the register, I'd see something else and I'd decide that's what I wanted. And so I'd I'd run back and I'd put that candy back and then I would pick up another one and, and change my mind once again. And even after the purchase was made, inevitably every single time on the car ride home, I would face buyer's remorse and regret the choice that I had made, thinking that there was, there was a better option out there. Perhaps you've had a similar experience when, you know, picking off or ordering off of a menu at a restaurant or choosing what flavor of ice cream you're going to get at the ice cream shop. In those situations, I was what we would call fickle. I would change my mind frequently. I I couldn't commit to a course of action in my candy selection. I would bounce from one thing to another without any kind of real commitment. Now it's silly, and it's one thing to be fickle in simple matters like selecting candy or ordering off of a menu or selecting your ice cream flavor that you want. Rarely will someone fault you in those instances. Where fickleness, though, will get you in trouble, though, is when it pertains to higher issues and more important decisions. When you are fickle in a position of leadership, that's when you will begin to catch some flack and uh, gain some criticism. And we've all experienced this, at least in the political realm. We see this play out in politics, right? Oftentimes, uh, candidates are accused of flip-flopping or not being clear in their motivations. They don't really take a stance for anything, right? They simultaneously say yes and no through the issues. And opponents of these candidates who are skeptical and who are suspicious will latch on to this as evidence that such a candidate's very integrity is compromised, because they refuse to commit. They're fickle. They are obviously keeping something from you for their own personal gain. I've mentioned in the last few weeks that 2 Corinthians, it was written for a specific purpose by the Apostle Paul as really a defense of his ministry and his apostleship and really a defense of the gospel itself because he had come under fire from uh, some traveling preachers who uh, managed to wiggle their way into a position of influence in this church located in the city of Corinth. And they criticized Paul in all sorts of ways. And one of those criticisms was that Paul was fickle. 
but he wasn't committed to the Corinthian church because he had changed up some of his traveling plans, that he actually cared more about the churches up in Macedonia than he did in Corinth. That Paul didn't go through with what he said he would do. In order to understand this, um, it would actually be helpful to see what Paul's original travel itinerary was and explore what exactly happened. And we have this. We know what Paul told the Corinthians because it can be found at the end of 1 Corinthians, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a letter to them, uh, chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. Paul gets to the end of the book, and this is what he tells the church of Corinthians. Take a look at it with me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And so that was the original plan. That's what Paul told the Corinthians he was going to do. I've got a map to help us kind of understand this. Paul is in Ephesus. It's where we would call modern-day Turkey on the western border there. And originally he told the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, what we just read, that, that he was going to go up and he was going to visit the churches of Macedonia, which is the northwestern part of that map, what we would know as Greece. Um, and then he will travel down to Corinth and he will spend a considerable amount of time uh, with them, perhaps all winter. Well, that didn't end up happening. Paul changes his mind at some point. And from our passage, we find out that Paul decided instead of going to Macedonia first, that he, he would actually travel to Corinth first. And then he would travel up to Macedonia and then travel back for a second time after he was done in Macedonia. He would visit the Corinthian church a second time. And so for Paul's opponents, uh, that's already one strike against Paul that he changed his original plans. But then to make matters worse, Paul changed his plans again because that first visit to Corinth didn't go well at all. It was a painful visit for Paul. It was, it went so poorly, right? And Paul was criticized so much in that first visit that instead of coming back a second time, uh, like he intended, he actually just sends this letter, a severe and a painful letter to the Corinthian church instead. And so, this led some of the influencers within the church of Corinth to criticize Paul even more. They said, Paul is obviously withholding something from you. He can't commit. He says yes to us in one moment, and with the very next breath, he says no. He's double-minded. He isn't trustworthy because he didn't follow through on what he said he would do. And since he didn't come back a second time after such a painful visit, you know what? He's a coward. He's not willing to face us again. He's only in it for himself, and his travel plans reflect that. And they would go so far even to make the suggestion that if Paul is so unreliable as a human being, then the gospel message that he preaches, one that uh, consists of weakness and suffering and submission, is also unreliable. So why don't you just listen to the gospel message of, of health and success and wealth that we, we have? Because Paul's message is unreliable. Well, Paul, for obvious reason, he takes issues with such criticism. And so he takes up his pen and he writes out 
a masterful defense, which is what we read here. In this passage, we'll actually kind of see three things, three themes, three different areas where Paul defends. Paul first practically defends his actions. Uh, He gives a reasonable explanation for why he changed his mind. He defends his actions. He also, in this passage, defends his integrity, his character. And then he will finally defend the gospel message. And so we're going to take this passage a little bit differently. We're not going to travel through this uh, verse by verse. We're actually going to travel through this thematically. I, we're going to jump around, and I promise that we're going to hit the whole passage. We're going to touch on each verse, uh, but we are going to jump around. And so follow along with me. I'll do uh, my best to show you where we are in the passage, um, but let's take a look at it. We're actually going to start in verse 15, where we see Paul give a reasonable explanation for his change of plans, um, which we'll find includes a surprising motivation. In verse 15, Paul uh, explains that he changed his original plans. He decided to go to Corinth first with intent to return to Corinth after his time in Macedonia so that they could have, what does he say? A second experience of grace. It's for a second experience of grace. Now there's several different ideas about what Paul means when he talks about this experience of grace. But regardless of what he means, no matter what it was, the main point is that the two visits initially was to benefit the Corinthians. Paul is saying, this was for you guys that I changed up my plans. You were my motivation. His motivation behind changing the plans was for the sake of the Corinthians. He wanted to bless them. He wanted to bless them with this double experience of grace. And once again, unfortunately, the visit didn't go well. And so Paul abandons plans to visit a second time, and they accuse him of being a coward because of it. They accuse Paul of canceling the second visit out of selfish ambition and having given an account for why he changed his initial plans. Paul defends again once more his second change of plans. That's down in verse 23. And he, and he defends it in the strongest way possible. Right there in verse 23, what does he say? But I call God to witness against me. Literally, he says, I call upon God as a witness against my soul. It's like how he would say, as God is my witness. Paul is basically swearing an oath on his own soul, with his own soul on the line. He's saying, if I am lying, then God himself can pour out his wrath against me. With God as my witness, I did not come a second time in order to spare you. To spare you. Well, to spare them from what? To spare them from judgment. You see, Paul was an apostle of Jesus. And he carried apostolic authority. With such authority, if the Corinthians were still living in sin, with rebellious hearts, Paul, as an apostle, would have no other choice but to discipline them with the very authority that Jesus bestowed on Paul. They would actually be subject 
to God's wrath. And God would enact his judgment through Paul. See, Paul knew that he was apostle and he knew the type of authority he had. Paul is both able and willing to exercise his authority and judge those who claim to be in Christ, but to continue to live in sin. That's how serious this is. The Corinthians are living sinful lifestyles. And Paul wanted to spare them. And a second visit isn't going to be pretty. Paul's saying you wouldn't want a second visit if you knew what that all entailed. When I read this, I was reminded once again of my childhood years when I would have friends sleep over. Uh, we would always roughhouse in the basement and, and be up in the wee hours of the night making all sorts of noise. And almost every time, my mom or dad would always come down and they would yell at us to go to bed. And oftentimes, the last thing they would say before marching back up the stairs was, don't make me come back down here again. (laughs) Don't make me come back down here again. And I knew at that point that things just got real. (laughs) That if they came down again, there would be discipline. There would be pain. For Paul to resist coming a second time, and instead send a letter of rebuke wasn't an act of cowardice. It was actually an act of mercy. And it was a demonstration of humble restraint on Paul's part. It would have been very easy for Paul to say, you know what, I'm through with you guys. I'm going to show up and I'm going to vindicate myself. And he would have every right to do so. One author writes that instead Paul denies himself the pleasure of immediate vindication so that there would be joy when the Corinthians repented in receiving the severe letter. That, that their next, uh, the next time that they would come together wouldn't be one of grief and pain and sorrow and discipline, but it would actually be exciting and happy and joyful because they had repented. That was Paul's motivation. That this would drive them to repentance. And once again, it was for the sake of the Corinthians. Paul said, this wasn't for me, this was for you. And then he reminds them in verse 24, he says, I, I, I say this I, not to threaten you. I'm not going to lord my authority over you. It isn't some kind of a threat. No, he, he, he wanted to work on this issue with the Corinthians so that there would be joy when they were restored. And at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul goes on to explain that if he did pay them another visit, there wouldn't be joy. It was going to be sad. It was going to be painful again. There would be great sorrow for both you and for me. Because discipline, while necessary, is extremely painful. It's a painful process, even for the one carrying it out. As a mother or a father of a child, when you discipline your child, it hurts. It's hard. And that's how Paul feels towards the Corinthians. So to to summarize uh, this second change of plans, to Paul's estimation, writing a letter in lieu of a second visit was the most appropriate way forward. To, To visit them again would have caused pain and grief and potentially even judgment. And so he sent a letter and even the severe letter was written with tears of affection of love for the Corinthians. 
You could imagine the, the paper that it was written on was stained, water stained with Paul's tears. In this passage, um, Paul defends his decisions. That's what we've looked at so far. He defends his decisions, but we also see in the passage that Paul defends his integrity and character, which is a much heavier and more offensive charge. Right, Because you can criticize a leader's decision without ever touching their character or their inner motivations of, of such decisions. You, you can say, you know, I, I disagree with the decision, with your action, but I, I, but I trust that the motivation was pure. But that's not what the Corinthian church does here. Right? They criticized Paul's decision to change his plans, and then they attributed it to a fault in his character. They're saying, Paul, you are morally compromised, which led you to make such a decision. And so Paul defends his own integrity at the very beginning of the passage, actually. That's how he opens the whole letter, beginning in verses 12 and 14. Take a look at it. Verses 12, Paul says, look, my conscience is clear. I've searched my heart. And as far as my own understanding of moral sense, I've done nothing wrong. Because I've behaved with simplicity and I've behaved in the world with godly sincerity. Simplicity here means that Paul was free from pretense. Right? Pretense, it's the attempt to make something appear to be true that actually isn't. Paul doesn't have some sort of elaborate, self-seeking, self-ambitious plan. No, he's transparent. He's candid. He doesn't withhold anything from them with the attempt to deceive. He, he, he also acts in godly sincerity, which equates to the idea of purity in this context. His motives and his intentions are pure. And it's critical to catch this. Paul says, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Don't miss this. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul explains that his pattern of behavior comes strictly from the grace of God. Paul can't attribute his moral purity to earthly wisdom, to the the worldly way of living, to his own moral ability, because the world is bankrupt apart from the grace of God. The presence of sin makes it impossible for us to have a moral compass. The moral compass is broken. But when we are under the grace of God, it's restored. See, what we see here is the transformative nature of God's grace. Paul would willingly say and has said another passage that that before I knew Christ, I was rotten. My character was rotten. I was deceitful. I was in it for myself. I did have impure motives. I was all of the things that you accuse me of. And guess what? There's more. You haven't even scratched the surface about who I was. But then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he had every right and every opportunity to strike me down right then and there. And he didn't. He showed me grace and it changed my life. And now my character 
and my integrity is rooted not in my own moral sense, which has, which has failed me time and time again. It isn't rooted in earthly wisdom, but on God's wisdom. Still in the Corinthians, my character is really a testimony to what God has done for me and what God has done in me. And that, Paul says, is something worth boasting about. In the first few verses, Paul is talking about boasting, bragging, which may seem uh, like an odd concept, because as a child, you probably were told uh, not to boast or brag. Even Paul writes at length about how boasting is something to be avoided, but he tells this very same church in 1 Corinthians that when you boast, boast in the Lord in what he has done. You see, he brings up this theme of boasting because that's all the opponents in this church were doing. The ones that were challenging Paul and his character and his actions, they were boasting. They were boasting of their strength and they were boasting of their might and their power and their money and their flair and all the things that they were. They were boasting about how good they were and how accomplished they were. And so Paul here is saying, oh, you want to boast? Let's boast. But I'm not going to boast in my character like you do. No, I am going to boast in the grace of God that transformed my character. That is my boast. And Paul has such confidence in God's grace that he knows his conscience is clear and that his, con- that his character is upright. And he has the confidence that when the Corinthians hear the rest of the story, not just the partial story, but the full story, when they have full understanding of God's transformational grace, that they wouldn't doubt his credibility, but just the opposite, that they too will boast of God's grace and what God has done, just as Paul boasts. On the day that Jesus returns, we must understand that our boast will be one thing. And that is the transformational grace of God on our lives. We won't boast in our own strengths or our own skills or our accomplishments or our accolades because they are worthless on that day apart from Jesus. They virtually count as nothing in the eyes of God. And so what is there to boast about? Then the only thing that's going to matter when Jesus comes back. And so we see God's grace, his redemptive action in history is actually the very root of our moral sense of our character. And that's where Paul wants the reader to land on this passage. That's the application, if you will. Paul wants the reader to understand that he is faithful and he is committed only because we serve a God who is faithful and committed. Paul says, I have built my life on a faithful God and around this message of grace and from the river of grace flows character and from character flows my actions and my decisions. One commentator writes that Paul here describes his own decision-making, how his own decision-making was based on the principles derived from the way in which God himself has acted in redemptive history. Paul uses this moment, uses this moment to, to lay the theological framework 
for why he is how he is and why he does what he does. I want us to take a look at this in verse 17. He, he begins by asking two rhetorical questions in regards to his travel plans, the change of his travel plans. First, was I vacillating? Or in other words, was I merely indecisive when I changed my plans? And the second question, and, and do I make plans according to the flesh and tell you yes and no at the very same time? The answer to these rhetorical questions as expected is a big, fat, and resounding no. Of course not. That would be, that would be ludicrous for Paul, who has submitted his life and built his life on the firm foundation of God's grace. Paul says, I'm not deceitful in my actions towards you. I'm not two-faced. I don't vacillate. I'm not fickle because I serve a God. And I've grounded my life in a God who is faithful. My actions are but a pure, mere reflection of God's faithfulness. Verse 18, Paul basically says, I have modeled my faithfulness after the ultimate faithfulness, the ultimate picture of faithfulness of God. Corinthians, I am reliable and credible because God is reliable and credible. For Paul, there is a direct link between his theology of God's faithfulness and his own ethics, between his theology and his his morality. This is why Paul would later write to his apprentice, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4. What what does he tell Timothy? He's instructing Timothy uh, on how to be a Christian leader. And he tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Be, be, Be careful with your life. Watch what you do. And watch what you believe, because the two are eternally linked. Paul says, I I live my life and I make my decisions in the fact uh, that God is faithful. Paul, Paul was radically truthful because God is the center of his life. He is radically truthful because of his, his theology. You see, for us as believers, truth telling, Simplicity and sincerity is a way of life. This is what should be pouring out of us, oozing out of us, as we as we focus our theology on a God who is faithful. In a very practical sense, this passage teaches that we must make our decisions and conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy and consistent of a faithful God. Our lives need not be just one of truth telling, but truth living. And it is absolutely disgusting and shameful the way that many Christians buy into and even spread lies for their own selfish gain. It mars the character of God's faithfulness when we do such things. We are truth bearers, and we serve a faithful God. And how do we know that God is faithful? Who do we look to? What proof is there that we worship a faithful God? Paul clearly gives us the answer in verse 19 and 20, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed to you, my buddies and I, 
He was not a yes and a no, but in him, it is always yes for all. All the promises of God find their yes in him. One author that I came across wrote that this is one of the richest statements of the gospel in all of the Bible. Now don't misunderstand it. It doesn't mean that God will always say yes to our requests. That his answer is always yes. What it means is that when God does say yes, you can take that to the bank because he is faithful. It means that he comes through on all of his promises and he continues to come through on all of his promises through his son, Jesus. All of the promises of the Old Testament given to his people, given to Israel, have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. And all of the promises that he, God has given to us as believers in the New Testament will be fulfilled in the person of Christ. Jesus is the magnum opus of God's faithfulness to us. The clearest expression of God's faithfulness is Jesus Christ. And so when God promises that he will deliver us from our sin and deliver us from death and pour out his grace on us and resurrect us from the dead at Jesus' coming, it's as good as done. Because Jesus has already accomplished all the work necessary at the cross. This is what trusting in God for salvation looks like. To say, God, while I haven't yet been delivered from my sin, it still has a presence in my life. And while I will experience death, I entrust my life to you. That when that day comes, Father, you will uphold your promises. God, I can trust you because you are faithful to me. And the wonderful thing about this passage is that it shows us that this isn't just a blind trust because we have an assurance of this in our life already. And this is what Paul describes to us in verse 21 and 22. That the the faithful God has established us in Christ. He has anointed us, Paul writes. In ancient times, anointing, it was actually a symbolic action. What started off as a practice from a shepherd with his sheep became a symbolic action to, to signify God's blessing and his empowerment through his spirit. All believers are, are anointed, blessed, and empowered by God. You may uh, have bought in um, to the mistruth that certain believers are anointed. They're like, Special, oh, you're so anointed, right? People say that all the time. That person is so anointed. Well, guess what? As a believer, we're all anointed. If you are established in Christ, you are anointed. You have been blessed. You have been empowered by the Spirit. He has anointed us. Paul says he has also put his seal on us. Like the rancher who brands his cattle in their, in their youth to signify ownership. God has placed his seal on us. He owns us. He has spiritually marked us. And that mark is proof that we are without a question hits. He has sealed us. And finally, he has given us 
his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Or in other words, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. Just as you pay a deposit or a down payment as proof that you are committed to a purchase, that you will see such a purchase through, God has given us a deposit as proof that he will come through on his promises when Jesus returns. The Holy Spirit is a pledge of God's faithfulness and commitment to us. Whoever God gives his spirit to, we can trust that he will see them through to eternity. And it's not because of our faithfulness to God, because often we are the unfaithful ones. We are the fickle ones. We are the ones that place a down payment and then have second guesses. But not God. He is faithful to us. He will see it through. His word is his bond. What more assurance of salvation do we need? Now, perhaps you sit here this morning and you look at these final verses that we just spoke about and it has become very evident and clear to you that these verses don't describe you. You you, you think, now I've been coming to church my entire life, but I'm not established in Christ. And I haven't been anointed or empowered. I don't have a seal, a mark. I, 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 I don't have the Holy Spirit and my life is evidence to that. If you can't say in confidence that God has established you in Christ and anointed you and marked you and sealed you by the Spirit, I have wonderful news and that there is still time to turn to Jesus. Similar to Paul. Jesus has withheld his second visit to this point and instead has written us a letter, right? right, A a letter in his word, which calls us to repentance, calls us to turn to him. And it was written out of great love and and great affection. And in some regards, it is a painful letter and it is severe because it tells us that we're sinful and that we need a savior. And it calls on us to turn to Jesus. It's painful to hear that we aren't good enough, but it's joyful in that it provides us somebody who is. And the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet a second time is an act of mercy for those of you who have yet to turn to him. He loves you and he wants you to turn to him. And in fact, Peter writes this in first Peter that he hasn't come back yet so that nobody would perish. It's not his wish to discipline, but there will be a day when God will come through on all of his promises And time will be up and there will be no more opportunities. May that day be a joyful day for you, having been established in Christ, rather than a painful one, having been found outside of Jesus. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness to us, Father, that we can count on you 
Lord, it's frustrating to me when others let me down because of a lack of faithfulness, as it is frustrating for them uh, when I myself am fickle in my own humanity, Lord. I pray, Father, that our integrity and our character would be rooted in your faithfulness and your action throughout history, Father. And we praise you that there will be a day where your faithfulness will be full on display. Lord, we are mocked uh, now. Um, And many people ask, where is your God, Father? And so we hold on to that promise. And we greatly look forward to those of us who are in Christ. We look forward to that day. Uh, where Jesus will vindicate all of those who have looked to him and turned to him, Lord. We praise you, Father. We give you glory. This is the reason we give you glory, is that you are committed to us, even in our sin and our rebellion. In your holy name I pray. Amen.